Good morning. How are you this morning? You know, I'm tempted to say it's good to be here, and it is, but it's necessary to be here. Just time of worship, godly conversation, talking to a brother in Christ about vacation. This is necessary. My soul's been refreshed the brief amount of time that we've been here this morning. We all are familiar with the story, or at least a version of the story about King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. We can't even mention those two names, of course, without talking about Lancelot. Arthur was immediately impressed with Lancelot's bravery, his courage, and he brought him into his court as his right-hand man. This whole story begins to build and the tension begins to mount when Lancelot and Guinevere fall in love with each other and they begin to build a relationship. And it's a relationship that lasts for years. And although there's many people that are suspicious that a relationship's taking place, no one can actually prove it until Mordred, who is Arthur's son, catches them in their unfaithfulness and he is exceedingly happy because he doesn't like Lancelot too much because of his father's affections for him. Lancelot escapes. The queen is termed to be executed. And at that moment, when Arthur is called upon to give the signal to commence the execution, Mordred, his son, begins to taunt him. The son begins to taunt the father. And listen to what he says. He says, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. If you let her die, your life is over. If you let her live, your life is a fraud. Which will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or do you kill the law? Now, let's chew on that for a very, very, very brief moment. I think it's a relevant question in relation to how we interact with people of variations, sinful people. I think it's a very relevant relevant question in relation to the way that we attempt to balance out compassion for people while at the same time attempting to maintain a commitment to a standard. Now, maybe the better thing I need to do here is form this in, in in a question. Do I lack compassion for the person that betrays a standard that I hold in very high esteem? Or do I even have to make that choice? Does it have to be the queen or the law? Or can I show mercy to the queen and still maintain a commitment to the law? The ultimate question is, can mercy and justice coexist with one another? That's what we want to talk about this morning because that's the place where Christ is camping right now. And that's the question He's being pressed to answer. He's being pressed to make a choice this morning between a person and a precept. He's being pressed to make a decision or a choice between an adulteress and the law. So will Christ kill the adulteress? Or will Christ kill the law 
Or can the Savior rescue them both? Let's turn to John chapter 8 to find out. John chapter 8. Now, as we open our Bibles, most scholars say that starting in John chapter 7, verse 53, through to John chapter 8, verse 11, was not a part of John's original gospel because this section of Scripture is not found in most early Greek manuscripts. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but I do think it's important to note at this point what it is that we really believe about God in moments like this. Now, what I mean by that is we believe God is sovereign, so we do not fret over the authority of Scripture, even in moments like this. We believe that God is sovereign, therefore we believe that God in His sovereignty has placed this passage of Scripture before us to learn from, to glean from, to apply to our lives, regardless of what point He chose to insert it. We believe that this is for us, we believe it's authoritative, we believe it's inspired, because we believe God is sovereign over Scripture. Amen to that? Okay. John chapter 7, starting in verse 53 through 8-11, as we talk about Christian justice as a lifestyle. Christian justice as a lifestyle. They went each to his own house. Jesus has just been at the Feast of Booths. He's taught. He's offered living water. And the Jews hate him. The Jews are seeking to kill him because he is extremely threatening the stability that they're trying to establish. So after the Feast of Booths, verse 753, they went each to his own house. Eight, Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, the Greek language says, in the very act. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray.
Fathers, we come to you this morning, God. We are reminded of who we were before you at one time. God, we are reminded that the chains of condemnation and guilt and shame are heavy. We're reminded that they're oppressive. We're reminded that they rob us of quality of life. And at the same time, God, we are reminded that You hold the keys to release us from such bondage, to release us from shackles that bind us, to release us from guilt that haunts us, God. We are reminded in this passage of who You are, and so this morning, Lord, we pray that You would continue that work in us. God, that You would continue to free us. We want quality of life, God. We want fulfillment of life. We want satisfaction in life regardless, Father, of what our circumstances may look like or be at the moment. We want joy of life. We want the abundance of life. And so, Lord, I just pray that this morning, Father, confront us where we are. If we're dealing with condemnation, if we're dealing with guilt, or maybe we're on the other side. Maybe we're the accusers. God, free us from whatever bondage we may be residing in this morning. And we ask that You would do this for Your glory ultimately, God. Help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. A couple of things that I want us to learn about the Savior as well as learn from the Savior in relation to how He is dealing with these people, people that we would determine to be religious, and a woman that we would determine, if we were to be quite honest, maybe a little repulsive, as we talk about Christian justice as a lifestyle. And I want to pull two principles from that. The first is, Christian justice begins with purity of heart. The second principle is, Christian justice must be accompanied by mercy. We are immediately introduced to an extremely gross, an extremely staggering, an extremely evil sin in this passage of Scripture. Now before your mind wanders too far, I want to capture it because I don't want you to think that I'm referring to the sin of adultery when I say that. Because that's not the gross, staggering, evil sin that I'm referring to this morning. Now please don't misunderstand me. We all know that the sin of adultery is a great sin. We all know that it has the ability to destroy individuals, families, in two generations. We all know that it's a sin that has the ability to cause the victim of adultery to feel shame, fear, suspicion. It has the ability to cause the one who participated in adultery shame and tons and loads of guilt. One of the most burdensome times that I've ever had, not in ministry, but as a brother in Christ. When the Bible says share each other's burdens, one of the times that that Scripture meant the most and came to life the most for me is in that context of a man that I know, that I loved, 
a believer that came to me and said, this is what I've done. My family's found out as he's weeping and he's holding his head up with these hands and he's saying, what do I do now? And so we met and we talked and we prayed, all of us, the spouse included, but I watched. And I watched fear continue to grow and build. And I watched shame continue to grow and build. And there will be scars in their lives and the lives of their children for who knows how long. So please do not misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that adultery is not a great evil. It just doesn't seem to be the great evil that this specific passage highlights. The great sin that this specific passage highlights seems to be malice. Malice seems to rise up and take center stage. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking that meanness, that hatred, that judgment that can reside deep into a person's heart toward another person in spite of the other person at the expense of another person, even if that other person happens to be a sinner. That's the sin that we see dominating this passage, woven into the fabric of everything that the Savior has to say. Have you ever been overwhelmed with guilt? Have you ever heard the great accuser, Satan himself, have you ever heard him call you specifically by name? and drag your conscience and your memory and your mind and your experiences over the coals of accusation to the point that you felt like your heart was about to break into pieces? Have you ever experienced guilt on that level? Listen, make no mistake about it, beloved. She is guilty. She stands guilty. There is no evidence that would suggest that she is not guilty. Now, there possibly is evidence to suggest that this whole event was set up. There's evidence to suggest that she's a pawn for the sake of testing the Savior. There's evidence to suggest that possibly she was even intentionally seduced so that she could be taken to the Savior and asked, what do we do with her now? But beloved, make no mistake, she's guilty. There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that she's not been active in the crime that she's accused of. As a matter of fact, when the Savior says to her, go and sin no more, that does nothing but validate the fact that she's been engaged in the sin that He's telling her to not be a part of anymore. She looks guilty. She feels guilty. She is Guilty. The Bible says that Jesus went into the temple in the early morning. The Greek language suggests that the dawn has not burst forth through the, through the dusk yet. It's still dark. Jesus is in the temple teaching. And there's a woman who's cheating. And the Pharisees are outside watching. They burst the door open. They yank back the sheets. They grab her from the state she's in. They take her into the temple for every person to see so that she would be viewed as an adulterous monster that needs to be put to death so that the world would be a better place. And listen, beloved, she stands as a representative of everyone who is not or has not, or better said, she stands as a representative of everyone who has stood before the Savior unclothed in righteousness.
She's a representative of you and me. That's who she is. It's exactly who she is. And listen, beloved, that reminder alone should help us to reconsider being so quick to impose judgment upon another person because they don't respond to certain truths the way that we respond to certain truths. That truth alone should cause us to not be so quick to respond to people and judge people because they don't respond in certain circumstances the way that we would respond in certain circumstances. Or they hold on to convictions in a different way that we may hold on to convictions. It would serve us well to remind ourselves that maybe we shouldn't be so quick to pick up the stone, but much quicker to release it and let it fall to the ground. Can you imagine if your sins were on display? Can you imagine if your deepest, darkest sin were played upon the screen for everyone to see? Can you imagine the shame and the guilt that would come along with that? That's what this lady's experiencing at this moment. And the reality is, you know what closes the gap between her and me? Do you know what closes the gap between the blatant homosexual and me? Do you know what closes the gap between the obvious drug user and me, this woman and me? The only thing that closes the gap is the fact that her sins are just a little more exposed and mine are just a little better hidden. That's the only difference. That's why Sunday school was such tr- was so troubling to me. Okay? I didn't go to church much when I was little, but I remember going to Sunday school, and I remember this so vividly. I was in elementary school, and I'm in Sunday school, and the teacher is talking about, I remember his face, I remember certain young boys that were sitting around, and he says, when we die, what's going to happen is we're going to be judged by Christ, and what that means is He's going to take all of your sins and He's going to show them on this big screen for everyone to see. And so everyone's going to see all of the sins you've ever committed and you're going to see all of the sins everyone else has committed. So this little boy, who was actually my cousin at the time, he says, yes, David. Well, won't that take a long time for us to kind of watch everybody's sins and have everybody's sins shown? Okay, but this is how the Sunday school teacher responded. He said, yes, but we have eternity. Listen, what a horrid thought. (laughs) What a horrid thought that we're going to spend so much of eternity looking at my sins. That's going to take a long time in itself. You're going to look at my sins and I'm going to look at your sins. What a horrible thought that that's how we're going to spend eternity versus glorifying God, celebrating God. Continuing to learn about God. What a horrible thought that is. And I don't know about you, but maybe your sense of justice is skewered just a little bit. Christian justice. That's what we're talking about today. So initially, we are confronted with the need to be redirected and reoriented to a biblical view of justice. And it begins with purity of heart. Christian justice begins with purity of heart. Let's go back to verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, 
that they might have some charge to bring against him, he responds. He bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So let's ask a question. What would justice on its own say to this woman at this moment? Not what would social justice say. Not what would biblical Christian justice say. What would legal justice say should happen to this woman? Legal justice would say you're guilty. You are deserving of death. Why? Because the law has determined that death is a just penalty for the two that are involved in the act of adultery. Let's look at Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. It states this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. In other words, she's a willing participant. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is no joke. And it's no joke. Look, we're even told in verse 23 that even if a woman is engaged and cheats, that in itself is adultery and worthy of death. So Jesus, what will you do at this point? Jesus, do you kill the adulteress? Or Jesus, do you kill the law? Let me ask you a question. What do you do? What do I do? How do we function in this world? How do we make decisions in relation to people how do we determine the worth of other people? Are we functioning on justice alone or our version or our definition of justice alone? I think it's a worthy question. How do you feel about and respond to people who define marriage differently than you do? How do you respond to people and feel about people who define marriage as a matter of personal preference rather than biblical stability? How do you feel about people who have a different perspective? And how do you respond to people who have a different perspective of what women's rights really mean? What about the smaller issues? How do you feel about people who have a different perspective of what raising a child, what raising children looks like or what building a church really looks like? How do you feel about building relationships with that motley crew type of group that always seem to surround the Savior? Or perhaps better said, the Savior always seemed to surround Himself. How do you deal with, respond, interact with those people? I'm going to tell you right now, your perspective and definition of justice is going to determine that. So just maybe the best thing for us to do right now is to define justice. Because 
If you're like me, my temptation is to define justice very specifically, and it's always one-sided. Well, justice are the justice is the consequences that come when someone does a wrong. No, justice means much more than that. So at this point, and because I need the help, we're going to call on Tim Keller to help give us a more well-rounded definition of Christian justice as a lifestyle. And I'm going to simply read. See, we think justice is its consequences for your wrong. That's my definition of justice. Tim Keller has three, and I'm going to read them to you. He says this. First, it means to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. Okay. Now, that's the definition of justice I'm most familiar with and probably the most content in. You do a wrong, you receive the punishment, same punishment for everybody who does the same wrong. He goes on. Secondly, it also means giving people their rights. Deuteronomy 18 directs that the priests of the tabernacle should be supported by a certain percentage of the people's income. This support is described as the priest's justice, which means their due or their right. So now we're building. Justice then is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. I know what the punishment should look like. I know where the punishment should go. But now I'm being put in a position where I now have to determine who is due protection. Who is due care. Thirdly, his last definition. Justice refers to a life of right relationships. When most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, righteousness refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. So now justice is not just something that is imposed upon other people. Justice is something I'm called to give other people. Justice isn't just something that is due people who've done wrong. Justice becomes my responsibility to give out to people to help them see things in the right way, to, to exhibit and project the love of Christ. Listen. Justice begins with a purity of heart because justice is the consistent Christian necessity of this life. Justice is the consistent necessity of the Christian life. And all we have to do is think about the Savior Himself as our example. Listen, Jesus was not a Johnny on the spot who pulled out a bag of tricks and fixed people's problems. Christ came to give justice through the cross, but the Savior came to do justice through everyday life. And we can learn from that. When the Savior sat down and spoke with Nicodemus rationally, 
a man who was a sinner, by the way. He was doing justice. When the Savior revealed Himself to the woman at the well, woman who was a sinner, when He revealed Himself to her graciously, He was doing justice. When the Savior revealed health and help to the paralytic at the pool who was a sinner, when He did that kindly, the Savior was doing justice. When the Savior fed the 5,000 miraculously, the Savior was doing justice. When we care for others, the orphans, the widows, when we care for each other, when we share the Gospel, yes, with our family and with the people in the projects, when we share our lives, when we share our stuff, when we share our resources, we're doing justice. Notice this, the roots of Christian justice... They are always going to be seen in what I do for the good of others, but Christian justice will never be identified in the way that I condemn or criticize others in relation to their wrongs. Never. Maybe, as Jesus exposes their hearts, maybe He can expose ours as well. Look at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with His finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask Him, we'll stop there, what did He write? We don't know, we're not even going to speculate on that. But what He is doing is He's maintaining and He's keeping control of the situation. It's almost a sign of disrespect. Look, you want to come to me with this accusation, I'll respond when I want to respond, I'll respond how I choose to respond, and He bends down and ignores the accusation. could be a dilemma. It could be a dilemma because if he says stone her, then he's questioning Roman authority because the Romans have stripped all authority from the Jewish leaders to exercise any type of execution. That's why the Savior himself went to Pilate. If Jesus says let her go, then at that point he puts the law of Moses itself into question. So Jesus goes straight for the jugular or perhaps better said he goes for the aorta. He goes for their heart and he stands back up when he's ready to stand back up and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We're getting ready to look at an application for us, but I think that it's extremely interesting that the Savior reverts back to the very law that they're attempting to manipulate in order to expose the depth of their own hearts in relation to sin. Because there are two things that the law is very specific about that they're overlooking. The first is that there has to be at least two witnesses who see the same exact thing and there can be no, there can be no difference in their testimony. As a matter of fact, in the Acrypha or Bible-type writings, but they weren't accepted into the canon of Scripture. There's a story of a woman by the name of Susanna who was charged with adultery. The case was dismissed because the two witnesses could not agree on what type of tree it was that the adultery supposedly took place under. So that's the, that's the degree of the exactness that has to be seen through the witnesses. There's a second thing that they're overlooking as well. The witnesses themselves have to be the first ones to throw the stone at this woman. And the way it typically worked, the witnesses threw the first stones, everyone else kind of joined in, 
And that way, the actual death of the woman wouldn't be linked to a specific person, kind of like a firing squad. Everybody thinks they're getting bank, blank bullets, but someone actually gets a real one. Okay, so your conscience is kind of clean because you don't know who actually did it. Okay, so what Christ does, he actually goes back to the law and now he places these people themselves on the witness stand and they have to answer some questions. Okay, if you're wanting to follow the exact letter of the law, tell me why you brought her and not him. If we're going to follow the law here, let's follow it to the letter. Why is the woman here and why is the man not here? They're going to have to answer that question. The second thing is, if they stone her according to Roman law, then they're subject to the death penalty themselves. They have no intention of stoning her. Remember, this is a test specifically for the sake of seeing where the Savior stands. Can we entrap Him? Because remember, they want to see Him dead. They want to kill Him. It's high on their priority list. Now, it's a practical application for us here at this moment. It was about 15 plus years ago that then-President Bill Clinton was impeached for perjury and obstruction of justice. There was a phrase that was used continually by his liberal friends and the liberal media and that sentence and that statement was this, well, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. But it was always used in the context of, listen, if, you're, if any of you have any type of sin in your life whatsoever, who do you think you are that you can say what he's done is wrong? That was the context it was always used in. Let me make it very clear that that is not what is being suggested at this moment. The suggestion is not, don't judge sin. The suggestion isn't, don't judge sin, obviously in your own heart. The suggestion isn't, don't judge sin in your culture. Don't judge sin in your family. Don't judge sin in your church. That's not the suggestion. But the suggestion is, make sure that you have a very clear and exact judgment of yourself before you impose judgment on someone else. Look, Jesus has just got through saying in John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge. So we're called to judge to a degree. But judge with right judgment. Justice is primarily a matter of the heart because judgment requires two things that really demand the heart be engaged. The first is, when we are talking about judging other people, first thing is this, please be very cautious. We're called to be very cautious when we're tempted to judge others because we do not have full disclosure on a person's life. As a matter of fact, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 of that very thing. Be very careful and very cautious when you judge, because Christ is coming who knows all things fully, and He judges from what's really going on in the heart. The second thing that we need to know when we're talking about casting judgment, or judging people, or judging sin, is that, yes, be cautious in relation to judging others, but beloved, be very certain 
in relation to the judgment that you need to cast upon yourself. Listen, judging sin, judging people, there is a prerequisite involved. And the prerequisite is make sure that you have clean hands and a pure heart. The prerequisite is make sure that you have a renewed mind. The prerequisite is make sure that you have a refined will, that you have God-glorifying motives, and that your words are very true to the Savior's heart. If not, if we've not spent much time judging ourselves, then we need to be very cautious and very slow in casting any type of judgment whatsoever on anyone else. We are called to be extremely confrontational with our own sin long before we're called to be confrontational in relation to the sins of other people. Why? Because we just can't trust ourselves and our motives that well, if not. One unknown author states this, self asserts itself in criticizing others. We could stop there. This is all about protecting self. I don't trust myself enough to cast judgment. Man, I have got to do some serious soul searching and heart digging first. He goes on to say, let this thought burn itself into your memory. The more like Jesus Christ a man becomes, the less he judges other people. It is an infallible test. Those who are always criticizing others have drifted away from the Savior. They may still be His, but they've lost His spirit of love. Beloved reader, if you have a criticizing nature, allow it to dissect yourself and never your neighbor. Tozer said the same thing in a different way when he said, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. What's that mean? Well, it means that Christian justice must be accompanied by mercy. It must. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Augustine assesses this moment and he says, the two are left alone. A wretched woman and mercy. And it's at this point that we do not ask if justice and mercy can coexist. We declare as the church, the people of God, that justice and mercy must coexist as a lifestyle. Thomas Aquinas states, mercy does not destroy justice, but is a certain kind of fulfillment of justice. Mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution, and justice without mercy is cruelty. Now let's establish something right now. If we think for a moment that the Savior is taking this woman's sin lightly, we are thinking extremely wrong. Jesus says to her, go, sin, no more. The word sin is a present tense verb in that passage, which means He's painting the idea to her, stop right now this life of sin that you're living, and go, and as you go, stop right now, living the life that you've been living. Go and stop 
your sin. If we see anything at all in the Savior, we see faithfulness to justice. If we see anything at all in the Savior, we see faithfulness to the law because He says, neither do I condemn you. The word condemn means to impose a sentence. He's not going to oppose a sentence. Why? Because there's no accusers that can say, I saw her in this act. There has to be two witnesses that have seen her. They are not there. Therefore, He does not condemn her. Why? The law says He can't. The law says He won't. Now, we look at that and we say, okay, the Savior's speaking justice. But I need to point out to you that as the Savior is speaking justice, He is at the very same time speaking much mercy. Justice and mercy coexist through the person of Jesus Christ. Neither do I condemn you. Now, let's point something out here. The Pharisees realize we're not worthy to fulfill this execution. Full of sin. Full of hate. Full of anger. Listen, the Savior's sinless. He could have carried it out. He's sinless. Not only is He sinless... He doesn't need the testimony of a man to know what she's done. He knows exactly what she's done. He knows exactly when she did it. He knows exactly who she did it with. So the very fact that the Savior says, neither do I condemn you, it is a statement that drips with mercy. It drips with grace. He is sinless. He knows the detail. He is worthy to carry out the punishment. Yet... He couples justice, His commitment to the standard, with mercy. Let's get a hold of the truth that Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Let's get a hold of that. There are no greater words that can impact our lives if we truly believe those, and there are no greater words to shape our definition and our lives as we do mercy, as we do justice. And Jesus wants us to see the impact of that truth. And we know it because how He structured the sentence. The first thing is the good news. Neither do I condemn you. The second truth is how that good news is designed to shape our lives. Now that you know I do not condemn you, go your way and sin no more. Don't seek to do in order to be free from condemnation. Know that you're free from condemnation so that you can now go and do. So let's go back to our original question. How does God rescue the adulteress and not violate the law? How does He save the adulteress and maintain the integrity of the law? How does He do it? He does it through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how He does it. Jesus Christ satisfied all of the demands of God's justice to the utmost. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God poured out His total wrath upon His Son, the person of Jesus Christ, in order that He could in turn pour out mercy 
upon all of those who would believe. Beloved, we are subjects of great, grand, unexplainable mercy and grace. And justice is not, justice is not compromised at all because justice was fulfilled completely on the cross. Why is this so relevant to us today? I want to suggest that our doing justice is a reflection of the gospel. That's why. That's why it's so important to us today. Now, there's another reason that I think Jesus doesn't say stoner. What if Jesus would say, stone that woman? How would that have compromised His message of come unto me all who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What if He would have said, stoner? Who would come fall at the feet of Christ knowing full of sin, need forgiveness, I can't go to Him. See, if Jesus said stone her, He would kind of be viewed as that one talent man viewed Him and it would have to be said of Him, you're a harsh man. You're a harsh man. I didn't do anything and I didn't respond because you were were seen as as a harsh man. See, what Christian justice does and why it has to be coupled with mercy is because it never leaves anybody in a state of despair. When we talk to the world that's guilty, when we're interacting with people that we've met, that we know, that we love, that are lost, what are we doing here? We walk away knowing that they know the truth. Yeah, you're in sin. The hope, you you are never in despair because of your sin. It seems like Micah knew exactly what he was saying in chapter 6, verse 8, when he said, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Remember what the answer to that is? To do justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Justice has been satisfied. Has anybody come to your mind right now that you might have unforgiveness toward? If there's somebody that you can think of right now that might come to your mind that you have unforgiveness toward, do you think you might know why you have unforgiveness? Maybe you're waiting for justice to be done. Maybe... Maybe you're waiting on justice to be done the way that you feel justice should be done rather than realizing that through the cross, God has determined that justice has already been done. So do we wait for our perspective of justice to come to fruition or are we satisfied with what God has determined is justice? Justice has been exacted, it's been perfected through the cross of Christ. Not so that we could just say we're forgiven and we're free, but so that we, beloved, could do justice. We're rescued so that we can become rescuers. 
God, I just come to you this morning, Father, and would ask that you would speak to our hearts right now, Lord. You know those moments, God, when I'm very critical. You know those moments when I'm condemning in speech and thought. Would you remind me of my great responsibility, God, to be ever soul-searching and to be judgmental of myself first and foremost, God. May that be my occupation. God, may that be all of our occupations for Your glory. God, we want to thank You for your definition of justice as relates to the cross, as relates to our salvation. Yes, Father, You would have been perfectly just to not give us hope through Christ. Yes, Father, You would have been perfectly just because of our sinful bent. But God, You chose to give us mercy through justice. Father, we can't wrap our minds around the full content of what it means, but God, thank You for Your justice upon Your Son that we would become sons of God. Lord, so this morning, we say thank You. We thank You that yes, this woman is symbolic of every one of us and how every one of us stood before You at some point in our lives. But because of the justice of the cross, you showed us mercy and said, go your way. You don't have to live that life anymore. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for that. And help us to show that mercy and live out that mercy toward others. In Jesus' name, amen.